This is Dr. Chris Ferris, registered acupuncturist, and welcome to FimiaCast, the official podcast for the Faresian Institute of Modern Integrated Acupuncture. If you are an acupuncturist or a practitioner with an interest in acupuncture, then make sure you go to fimia.com.au and sign up for free to get notifications on our latest courses and resources. Today I'm speaking with Dr. David Hartman, registered acupuncturist and Chinese medicine practitioner since 1997. If, like me, you studied acupuncture within the last eight years at Endeavour College in Brisbane, then you probably had David as a lecturer, or at least know who he is and know his level of passion for the practice of acupuncture and Chinese medicine. Since graduation, I have had the amazing fortune of remaining good friends with David and also the pleasure of helping him establish and run the Brisbane Chinese Medicine Group on Facebook. He is a supernova of activity and inspiration, with projects and plans to keep him busy for at least the next few decades. So, here he is. I hope you enjoy this first episode of FimiaCast with Dr. David Hartman. Shall we kick it off? Hmm. Dr. David Hartman, thank you for joining me today on FimiaCast. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. Thank you so much for coming along. It's an absolute pleasure. It's been uh, a few weeks in the making or potentially longer than that, but we finally managed to get down a date amidst uh, busy lives and, and schedules. So it's, uh, it's a real pleasure to have you here. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I was just nodding. It's interesting that no one's looking. No one knows that you're nodding. <laughs> we'll have to tell people. David yes. is nodding. <laughs> so uh, what's been happening? Um, yeah, just getting um, my book finalized for publication in uh, August or September. Mm-hmm. It's an acupuncture point combination book. Uh, so it's at its final stages of development with Singing Dragon. Yep. Um, yeah. Other bits and pieces. Um Signing a contract with um, Healthy Seminars, which is a Canadian uh, webinar mm. mob. And um, so that's going to keep me busy again for the next, well, that's I think a five-year contract. So Oh, good. It's exciting. Um, yeah. And uh, you know me, I don't sit still. So if I'm not doing anything at home, I'll tend to be looking for the next thing to research and of write course. about. Yeah. So with the, uh, the Healthy Seminars, is that, will that all be online? Yeah, the it's uh, a very practical based webinar. So it'll be um, so the first group of uh, webinars will go for two hours um, across ten hours. Mm-hmm. So five lots of two hour slots, and it'll be very um, much about how acupuncture point combinations work with. Um, I think it's the five element archetypes is the first one we're doing. Okay, and then the Wu Shan or five spirits. So the listener gets. Um, Stuff they can take straight to their clinic the next day. Yeah, okay. Um, but there's no kind of, I guess, practical demonstrations with the webinars. So I'm anticipating that once it's been out there for a couple of years that there'll be um, trips to different uh, countries to um, do practical application of the webinars. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's the plan. Yeah, great. Mm. All right, so... Uh, for someone, as you just uh, explained, you never really sit still. Mm-hmm. Uh, for someone who has quite a lot of energy, and I've, um, you were one of my lecturers at Endeavour, and so I've known you for uh, quite some time, and you've always told me that your 
uh, yeah, you've got a lot of energy. You've got you've always got a lot of projects on that I see. You've got yeah. a uh, massive list of conferences uh, and um, with your book tour coming up in 2019 that I don't even know how you fit it all in. Actually, yes, I do because uh, I have a busy life as well. So, but for yourself, what is your, uh, do you have any particular morning ritual that you do, like any particular routine that you do when you get up in the morning for for people listening who want to try to fit more into their life or wonder how uh, you get so much done? Is there any secret that you have? <laughs> um, well, I've got three kids, so they will be a large chunk of the morning routine. Mm-hmm to get them off to school. Uh, I do a lot of the, the drop-offs, pickups, and, and things in the day. So if I really want to get started, then I, I just get up earlier than they do. Yep. Um, the, the routine is fairly well set out. The kids are old enough now that, you know, everyone gets up about the same type of time. Um, so, yeah, I just, I'll just get up earlier mm-hmm. when the house is quiet, wander out to my little area and and make a plan for the day or start actually doing something yeah. before they do. And then once they're off, um, I then have a structure. And each day tends to have something different that I run with mm. as well. Um, don't like just doing the same thing every day, all day. Yeah, okay. Um, and there's enough in Chinese medicine to keep you busy and fascinated, probably for multiple lifetimes. This is well, not true. Not probably, definitely. Definitely. Mm. Uh, you, are you fairly, uh, you're a night owl, you stay up quite late working on your projects as well? Yeah, if I have to. Yeah, getting that book done at the end of last year was um, uh, ridiculous hours. Mm -hmm. And um, so coffee was my friend for (laughs) for a number of weeks at the back end there. Um, Yeah, just whatever. If I don't have to get up, I don't. I just get up when the kids get up. Yep. Um, I just play it by ear. I I just have a bit of a plan the the night before what my strategy is. Mm. If I have to set the alarm, I do. Um, Or I might go, you know, I'm... I'm going to get up when the kids get up and I'll start up later at night once they've gone to bed. Yep. Yeah. So with the, when someone puts a book together, uh, as we've all read so many textbooks throughout our degree and just people in general, uh, and as an admirer of, of, of authors, I sit there and I look at books and go, where do you begin to actually put something like this together of, you know, 500 page, 1000 page books or, or reference books or anatomy books, whatever it is, I just get boggled at the, the very first steps of, of where, you know, how, how do you start? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, it ends up being multiple uh, attempts. And I think it's a bit like writing an assignment, just a lot bigger because the book I've just written is 150,000 words. So, wow. Um, yeah, big undertaking. Um, when you propose, when you send a book proposal in mm. to a publishing company, they want a fairly good idea about how you're going to do it and so that's a good place to start you set out a bit of a a plan so like a um, table of contents yep but the table of contents um that i sent in and what's it's now going to look like is really quite different yeah okay so it came down to i guess a wish list Mm. things i really wanted to put in the book and when i sent off the initial proposal i realized that my wish list was going to exceed 150,000 words by quite some way yes so i said um i could do a, a foundations kind of book and then could i maybe write uh, additional ones down um which take channels and and look at points in a lot more detail and they 
I think that's what's going to happen as we move into the future. Yeah, okay. And you don't have to buy all the books. Um, they're not necessarily set up as a set uh, if it does happen. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, I just I guess it just starts somewhere and you get a plan and you go, oh, I really want to put this in and put this in. And then at the end when you, you're still kind of building it even when you're, you're nearly finished. Yeah. So I ended up up at 180,000 words and I still hadn't done some of the chapters I wanted to put in it. Mm-hmm. So then it was about taking words out, obviously, and also taking out chapters. And so there are some chapters that are actually written on my computer that will have to be for another book. And so it's just a, a process, really. And yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's like writing uh, writing an assignment. It's always harder to get uh, under the word limit than it is to <laughs> just, just, yeah. Yes. Always have way too much to put in. Yeah. So uh, can you explain to me, we're having a bit of a chat before about the actual process of uh, when you propose a concept for a book and then you said that it has to go through, uh, like the publisher will, will send it to people to get approval. Yep. Um, can you talk, talk to us about that and the, the process of what happens? Yeah. Um, so I guess I've been lucky with both my books that I got to the right publishing um, person from the get-go. Again, it could have all stalled at a reception desk somewhere. Yep. <laughs> um, which can happen for anyone and anything. So getting the right person um, was a good start. And then they send out a, a generic kind of um, list of questions. Mm-hmm. If they believe that your uh, topic for a book is something that they want. Yeah. So that's the first, I guess, hurdle is that you get the right person and then they're happy with your topic. And I actually with Singing Dragon had five different topics that I suggested. Okay. So it wasn't just the acupuncture point combinations. It was a eight extraordinary vessels book. Yeah. It was a heart Shen uh, emotions book as well. So there were all these topics and then they went, Oh, I think for us, uh, we've had a few people that do eight extraordinary vessels at the moment. Mm. So let's go with the point combinations. Yeah. Okay. And so then once they're happy with the topic, you then have to fill out a, questionnaire for the book proposal Mm -hmm. which is about 10 pages before you put any words into it yeah wow so it ends up quite a significant undertaking um it took me about two weeks full time Mm. to put it together and you have to have a fair idea about how you want it structured as i said in the last question you've got to have a table of contents and a plan and how many words you think you might want yes um all these things so then you fill it all out and then you send it off and then different publishing companies i'm sure run it different ways but um singing dragon then send it off to a number of people and they look at the what my answers are and they look to see if it it would suit the market and suit the publishing company yes okay um because just because singing dragon might not want any more eight extraordinary vessels books doesn't mean that a different publishing company might not be crying out for something like that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was uh, them happy that the topic was good. And then there's, well, I'm assuming in the background there was a number of um, yeses, approvals. Yeah. And then from there, um, it becomes a lot more on, on me, I guess. It's then actually starting to build the book. And then once the book, you get a deadline and um, then you send it in and they start to send it through to their editors and they start to build it. Yeah, okay. And on a couple of steps, what happens is that the editor will come back with questions. Maybe they've looked at a chapter and they'll say, oh, the way you're writing, 
doesn't flow with the way the rest of the book is or so it came back with um, quite a number of questions and suggestions and sometimes not suggestions but just a question mm-hmm. about a sentence I might have written mm-hmm. or a table that I wrote and you answer those and then the last stage which is about to happen is the book will be written and then they get a series of people to actually proofread the whole thing. Yes, okay. And then they send back their advice or suggestions. And then you look at all of their suggestions against one another and maybe if there's five people that look at it and they all say the same thing, you might make the change. Or if you can justify why you want to stick with your what you've written, then um, usually the publishing company is fairly happy with you if you have a, a good justification. Yeah, wow. And then... It, yeah, it gets released and then you kind of self-promote and get out there and and do some book tours and stuff. Yeah. yeah. It's such a, such a long and rightly so, such a, a long process. So from the, the first conception of the book when you had the idea to now, how long has that been? Oh, okay. That's a good question. Um, or when, uh, when you first took the steps to get it published. Yeah. So I, I sent in... When I first contacted contacted them, it was about um, February 2017. Mm-hmm. And then through the process, they got to a point where I started writing it about July yeah, okay. 2017. Yep. And then it was due September 2018. So mm-hmm. they gave me about, was that 14 months? Mm-hmm. And then I needed an extension. Yeah. So I got through to November. So it ended up, I guess, a February 2017 to a September 2019. Yeah, wow. So it's two and a half years plus. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess if you want to get books written and you want to keep pumping more books one after the other out, you kind of almost need to anticipate when one ends and yeah, that's right. be ready to start the next. Yep. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, so just a bit about your uh, past, if we can, David, what, what actually brought you to acupuncture? Like what, what were you doing beforehand? What was the, the journey up to the point where you started studying? Um, I, um, was nearly straight out of school, which is a bit unusual, um, as you would know, Chris, that we don't get a high percentage of, um, uh, people that start in acupuncture straight out of school. We have quite a high percentage of, um, middle age or certainly 30 plus. Yes, definitely. Um, Yeah. So, um, when I finished school, I, I didn't apply myself at school. I, I got terrible marks. I, I, I didn't even get a high enough mark to do a some degree in Western Sydney um, University. So I looked around for other suggestions and I took up a um, hospitality course in Sydney. Mm. And um, so moved there and uh, it was not a particularly good experience. Wasn't making enough money to survive. And so I moved back to... Mum's house, uh, which was um, in New South Wales, northern New South Wales, and I helped one of Mum's friends build a mud brick house. Yeah. <laughs> and through all of that, uh, kept looking around and moved up to Brisbane and did uh, actually did work for the Dole. Yeah. Which was an interesting experience. I'm glad I did it. Um, and through that, uh, Mum actually was driving back to our home in New South Wales and. Um, the truck in front of us spat a rock up and it hit her window and it shattered the glass. Yeah. So she pulled into a little town and got it fixed. And while she was getting the, the windscreen fixed, she popped into a coffee shop and the 
Endeavor College Natural Health um, brochure. Oh, really? Was sitting right there on top, and it was called Australian College of Natural Medicine back yes. then. Yep. She picked it up and she went, "Oh, acupuncture," and. I was born in the early 70s and so acupuncture wasn't all that big in Australia back then. Mm -hmm. But mum still found acupuncturists to take me to for a variety of different complaints. Yeah. Um, so she's real, she's always called a, like a hippie, but and I guess she is in a way. Um, and um, so, yeah, I guess because I'd had it when I was little and I had it again when I was in year 12 for stress. Yes. Um, as soon as she got the car fixed, she turned back around and drove back to Brisbane. Yep. And showed me the brochure and we managed to get in and see them the next day. And from there, it just kind of happened. Yeah, wow. But I had no coin, no money at all. And they wanted money up front mm -hmm. and banks wouldn't lend me money. And um, I just put it out there to the, the universe. I, I need, you know, 2000 bucks to start this course. Yes. And it just came. Yeah, right. And I haven't looked back and <laughs> I wasn't as a um, higher achiever as yourself um, in my marks, but I was getting high distinctions in pretty much everything, and yeah, which was fascinating because I was so terrible at school. That's still pretty, uh, still high achievements, high distinctions, David. I know. <laughs> oh, I'm not unhappy with them. Yeah, <laughs> I was very happy with my marks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's I wasn't when you find that thing that you are passionate about and you have a love for. It's the it it's not difficult anymore. No, no. You can apply yourself more. You you love what you're doing you're fascinated by it you want to learn mm. yeah I, I just didn't like school i was bullied i didn't enjoy it i went to too many different schools so i just didn't care but when i started acupuncture i cared yeah and i still care yeah i was the same i didn't like school at all i couldn't wait to get out of there <laughs> um <laughs> i'm glad my kids like school <laughs> yeah i think it's um different generation though i guess schools are are, are a lot different i mean wasn't that long ago that I was at school? I guess it was. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Probably very different. Yeah, I finished school in 1991, so I've actually been doing acupuncture over half my life. Yeah, wow. Well. I started at 93, so I've been doing acupuncture since 1993. Yeah. Still love it. That's awesome. And I still don't know everything about it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, that's. Uh, I think that's a good thing to to pick an avenue where you can never be bored. Hmm. Um, and there are so many out there like that, but yeah, Chinese medicine and uh, just the human body in general. Yep. We are we are our own greatest mystery, and we'll we'll never find all of the answers. And I think that's what keeps people in all of their jobs, which is good. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, moving on from there, we've got. Um, oh, when, when did you start uh, lecturing? Uh, Two thousand. So. Even back um, in the 90s, you still had to be out for about five years before you could start teaching. Yep. And I think that's still pretty similar. I know you can do tutoring sooner than that. Um, three to five years, I think it was. So I finished at the end of 96 mm. and then I started teaching in 2000. Yeah. Uh, and it was at a, a, a smaller college in Stones Corner, mm -hmm. which was called Australian Institute of Applied Sciences. Yes. And I was there on and off until uh 2011 and then moved across to endeavor okay and have been at endeavor since 2011 yep yeah one of my first classes was actually um one of your classes yeah right yeah because that's when i started yeah. second time around I, I would have been at um 
So you would have obviously started teaching at ACNM. Yeah, I did a semester there in 2009. Yep. I had a break from Stone's Corner. Uh, they were transitioning across to a different owner and things weren't working out well. Yep. And they were trying to get rid of acupuncture. So I stepped away and then um, did a semester and then they called me back up and said, I want you to write a Bachelor of Acupuncture degree for us. Wow. And I thought, well, I, I can do a few subjects at um, Endeavour or I can go back and work full-time and write a bachelor degree. So I did that and hired a few extra people. Mm-hmm. One of them uh, was Helen Jorgensen. Yep. She helped me write it. And then that sort of fell through because we ended up with a different owner and they did they transitioned completely out of acupuncture. Yeah. And um, so then I ended up back at Endeavour yep. after that. So I think it was 2011 or 2012 I was back at Endeavour. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I remember you mentioning that when we when we first met you in those... in. Um, was it uh, therapeutics or was therapeutics it one? Therapeutics yeah. too, yeah. Yeah, that was a great class. Yeah, the moxa, the cupping. Yeah, yeah. when we were still doing some pretty uh, out there needle techniques. I don't know if they, they're still teaching them. Not really. Or if we were supposed to in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they're in fourth year now. Yeah. Yeah. Now, it was a fun class because I had, you couldn't do moxa in the room that we were in. So I, I had people in one room doing needling and then i had people half the class in another room doing moxa that's right i was running up and down up stairs and, yeah. <laughs> checking for on three us. Hours. um so with your practice that you have uh at the moment how like how many days a week do you practice how many days a week do you teach um and then obviously the rest of the time you just write books yeah <laughs> yeah um Try to leave the weekends free, but then I also have a lot of weekends where I'm doing workshops. So um, weekends at home are gold with the kids if possible. Um, so typically it runs at a sort of five-day week. So yeah, I try to do something different each day. So I will have patients, say, two half days. Yes. Um, and I don't like seeing a lot of patients anyway. Um, I really do try to target um that side of things and really dedicate my time to patients so they're often well they're never there for just one hour okay um and i don't like squashing patients back to back so it's all really quite casual yeah um the way that i structure that that's not casual once they're in the room but um that side of things in terms of booking patients up in those two half days doesn't happen so i'll have a number of patients a week across those two half days then i've got some lecturing which takes up at the moment another day. Sometimes it's two days, yep. sometimes three. It really depends. And then, yeah, the rest is typically uh, research, um, writing, mm-hmm. writing books uh, or, or writing uh, webinars um, or writing blogs. Yep. Uh, anything that I anything I find interesting I want to know more about, yeah, I, yeah. I uh, will then take it that step further and research and decide if I'm going to take it into something that I do write about. Yeah, that was something that always stood out for me as you as one of my lecturers, you incorporated a lot of different uh, concepts, particularly I know you really are into uh, ancient Greek mythology. Mm. And um, what was the, oh, you told us a bunch of different stories, but it was a good way to, there was like, um, was it Fortuna or? Yeah, goddess. Yeah, goddess and and um, just these stories that you would, would use to, to create analogies for what was going on in TCM and ways to yeah. compare it because uh, I, th- I think part of the purpose of why you were telling us that was to compare the 
the development of health and yep. uh, the traditions across the the spectrum of different countries in the world, and they all have these similarities. They all have a version of sickness or or, or health um, that they can relate to in order to work towards. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, the funny thing is, is that they have. Um, we're pretty comfortable that the ancient Greeks had four elements, mm-hmm. although some uh, books suggest that there was a fifth. Um, and the the authors or the philosophers that suggested the fifth, actually, when you translate the Greek or, or Latin into English, it actually comes up as almost another word for chi. Yeah, really. So their fifth element was was essentially chi. Was it ether? Yeah, ether. Um, yeah. Which is um, A E T H E R, I yeah. think. Yeah. Yep. So I mean, obviously, it can be translated a lot of different ways, and mm. and often we can't get a perfect translation, translating anything back into English. But yeah. That was something I noticed popping up quite a bit when I did the research. Is that yeah, you can if you want, translate that into chi or yeah, infinite energy or universal. You know, they they all have every culture seems to have a. Uh, except for the modern culture, seemingly seems to have a an, an analog for chi. Hmm. So the uh, Ayurveda and and uh, the yoga community has prana. Um, the Hawaiians have mana. Um, mm-hmm. The Egyptians had it. They they all have some form yeah. of universal life energy that that animates uh, that and and runs through everything and causes and is and is the result of yeah. everything that we do. Um, so they all witnessed that in some or observed that in some capacity and felt yeah. that it was such an influence on their life that it actually needed a um it needed a, a description for it yeah it was it was although part of us it was so uh had such a strong influence that it was separate from us at the same time yeah and then some cultures decided that it needed to be a god structure yeah um whereas the chinese didn't get too hung up on that I just kind of acknowledged that there was this universal energy which they had within them. So the macrocosm to the microcosm. And yes. I didn't really get too hung up about where it came from. I just um, cared about that they did have it and that they were here. And so that's another interesting history of of a different culture to the, to the Greeks and Romans again. So Yeah, so they didn't have, um, from, from what I know and what I've read, they, as you were saying, that the Chinese didn't have gods no is that right um did they have a hell or a or a place like that um no i don't think so they kind of had their they're on the earth they if they were your typical uh, ancient chinese person you, you tended to try to be the best you could be at whatever it was that you did yes you didn't necessarily want to change if you were a farmer you tried to be the best farmer you could be mm. Um, obviously, throughout history, that changes as different structures take place within Chinese history. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but yeah, they they kind of had um, your ancestors, and your ancestors kind of went to another place, which was like a mirror image of the world you lived in. Okay. And so it wasn't uncommon for for the ancestors to get buried with their stuff. Um, sometimes buried with their concubines and their servants and sometimes their kids and they're similar to ancient egypt yeah that kind of concept yeah so because they still kind of lived in this mirror image world the chinese that were alive would worship 
their ancestors. Yep. Wish them well. And so the original causes of disease in, in Chinese medicine was um, a curse of an ancestor. Yeah. Which could hurt you. It could hurt your family. It could hurt your town. Mm-hmm. Um, if an ancestor was particularly unhappy, they might even say, no, I'm going to give you a drought or I'm going to flood mm-hmm. or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and the other thing that was kind of out there were these kind of demonic type beings which weren't always considered bad. Yes. And so some of those Chinese movies that you see that are set in ancient times, they'll kind of, I guess, uh, pray to, it's not really praying, but essentially pray to a particular demonic being to perhaps come along and um, change, shift the wind. Yes, okay. I remember a movie called Redcliffe where they did that, where the wind shifted and it completely changed the context of the battle. Yes, okay. Um, so that could be good or bad. And that wasn't dissimilar to the goddess Fortune, yeah. goddess Fortunata. She could be good or bad too. Yep. She didn't care who you were. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Uh, and is that where uh, in the traditional, like back back when they had ancestor worship and the concept of a, of demons or even demonic possession causing yep. someone to have what we now know as uh, epilepsy or mm. uh, men, um, mental illness. Yep. Is it true that the moxa was used as a kind of like a smoke screen for these demons? They didn't they didn't like the smell of it and the, the smoke would blind them? Yeah. Is that the original, one of the original concepts? Yeah, it was because the, the, the demons were considered anthropomorphic. So mm-hmm. they had human characteristics. So yeah, uh-huh. they could smell, see, taste and moxa was considered a... Uh, repellent to them they didn't like the smell of it they did if you i mean if you put enough moxa into a room and there's not great uh, ventilation it gets pretty hard to see anyone would walk out (laughs) (laughs) and um so you know this smoke screen yes like you said uh, they couldn't see where they were going uh they didn't like the smell Mm. so they'd go i don't like this house i'll go to a different house yeah okay yeah yeah kind of like the white the white sage of china yes that's right yeah, once again, they like every every uh, culture had a version of that, that as well. Mm. So, with your practice that you do now, um, I've always known you to have a quite an eclectic approach to TZM, mm-hmm. and with your patients that you have, what what is it that you would consider as uni- unique about your like how you practice acupuncture or your approach to acupuncture when someone comes to see you? Yeah, um, I guess the first thing that um, the listeners need to know is I, I have a special interest in um, emotion-based treatment, mm-hmm. which is interesting because when I first started, I was really interested in everything musculoskeletal um, and tried to learn everything I could about the muscles and the bones and the ligaments and how that led to things like <clears throat> excuse me, headaches, um, migraines so I, I really took musculoskeletal as far as um i wanted to and yes. i did it for a long time actually um and probably been in the last what well, was when i was doing my master's degree i did a um my last assignment was like a, a mini um what do you call uh, when you do masters and phds uh, thesis yep it was like a mini thesis and so 15,000 words um 
And that was the last subject. It was a double weighted one. And that was when I first started to really look at the philosophy of Chinese medicine because I'd always known a lot about the Greek and Roman stuff. So it was a bit of a compare and contrast. And through that process, I started to see more and more about how acupuncture and Chinese medicine can help emotion-based things. Yes. Not just emotions, but actually change people's personalities. Yeah, okay. Hopefully for the better. Yeah. And um, so that was around 2008, 2009. So from there, really, I've, I've taken that as, and I just keep learning as much as I can about it. Yep. So with that kind of treating emotion-based things, I can be um, pretty straightforward kinds of um, emotional imbalances or they can be high-end stuff. Um, you can go into psychosis side of things as well. Yep. Um, so with that, there will often be a tie-in with other types of uh, areas. Again, the philosophy side of things, but also getting an understanding of how the person ticks on their inside. So that could be um, looking at their numerology. It could be looking at their five-element archetype, mm-hmm. um, other types of archetype systems. Um, my mum did uh, Myers-Briggs uh, for a lot of years. So that's that extrovert, introvert, um, thinker, feeler. Okay. That yes. type of thing. Yes. So you get given a, a, a label at the end, like all archetypes. Okay. And so might use a range of these different things to get a sense of what's going on with them and then tie that in with Chinese medicine. And so it's a little bit, I guess, unorthodox, mm-hmm. but uh, it really does give me a better sense of who they are and, and more importantly, it gives them a better sense of who they are. Yeah, okay. And... Once that happens, it, it really does help the overall um, a treatment because a lot of people tend to, to not really realize a lot about what's going on inside their bodies yeah. from an emotional perspective and just seeing some of the results. Uh, and in my book, I actually do a number of case studies where I talk about some of these patients and how it completely changed their lives. That's mm-hmm. not making me any more amazing than any other acupuncturist it's just me understanding who they are and who they want to be and that they recognize their strengths and their weaknesses and things that they want to try and fix yes you can't can't help an alcoholic if they don't acknowledge that they're an alcoholic yeah for example yeah and once they recognize that they can go okay well yeah i really do want some help with this in any type of thing if we go back to um, emotions or personality types and and traits that they have if they are generally a pretty good person but they just get too angry all the time mm. well look at what why, why that's happening yeah look at those layers on the inside and get a better sense of it yeah. and um acupuncture we all know helps the person heal themselves faster mm. so it's just about finding the right target when you go to, to needle yeah and being there for them, not judging them, not um, telling them what to do, giving them a nice, safe environment to go to where they feel supported and, and loved. Yes. Yeah, I guess that's probably um, where I really, um, this is where I like to treat. I think, give myself a little bit of a pat on the back, it's kind of where I shine. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you definitely have that uh, very welcoming. I've seen you treat in uh, like the student. Uh, clinics when I was studying and you very much have a, a, a warming and uh, inviting presence and 
patients have definitely said that being in your presence just as is is part of uh, what makes them feel better, not just the treatment. Yeah. I mean, again, you can get to things that people don't even realise because often um, we get in our own ways, mm. in our, get in the way of ourselves um, and some of the ways to, to um, what's the word, circumnavigate that. Um, so some of those are like getting people to draw mm-hmm. images and you get a better sense of what's happening behind the rational mind. So one of the two of the really good ones is get them to draw a picture of themselves with their family. Yes. Um, and another one is to get them picking an apple off an apple tree. Mm-hmm. And they're going to say, why, you know, what am I supposed to do? And can it be in color? And, you know, actually physically picking an apple and you just say to them, well, that's now your rational brain getting in the way. Yeah. Just draw it. Yep. However it comes out, I don't care if it's stick figures. Um, I'm, I draw stick figures. It's just what comes out. And if they keep overanalyzing everything as they're drawing it, one of the good ways is to get them to put some music on. Yes, okay. And think about the music and don't think about what they're writing. Yeah, right. And it really does give you a good look at what's happening in behind all of the layers. So can you give us an example of... Um with the picking the apple from the tree, mm-hmm. so what what would the different variations be and what can you um, take from someone's drawing? Yeah, so um, the tree itself is you. So it's where you start drawing the tree trunk. Mm-hmm. If you've got roots, that's your ancestors yep. and that can apply. But from the minute you start drawing the trunk, that's when you're born. And okay. to the top of the tree is your current age. Yeah, right. And so then you split the tree up into easy maths <laughs> and you're looking for things on the tree. So the tree trunk, when it starts to branch out and become um, foliage or um, uh, whatever, that's typically when you've left home. Yep. So people that are constantly going back home again will have a little branch poking out with some um, flowers or some apples um, or some leaves and then they'll be trunk again. Yes, okay. Yeah, they're back home. Yep. Then they leave again and there's another branch and then they're back home again. A yeah. bit more trunk. And then when they finally leave for good, the actual uh, foliage takes over from the trunk. Mm-hmm. Um, you look at where the apples are. Uh, you look at the ages that the apple represents. Um, left and right sides of the page represent left and right sides of the brain, mm-hmm. but it swaps over. So the left side of the page is the right side yep. of the brain and vice versa. Yes, so when you're picking an apple from an apple tree, are you what side of the tree are you on? What side of the page are you on? Mm. Um, have you reached the apple uh, or are you short? Um, how long is your arm in the context of your body? All these things. How many apples there are? How many apples there are? Mm-hmm. Um, is there a big hole in the trunk? You know, a big black hole in the middle of the trunk, yes. which can often indicate a, a severe depression or a sadness for some reason. For a period of years in their life, yeah, yep. Um, you just look at all the different things, and it gives you a better sense of what what's happening inside themselves that they might be aware of, or yeah. Well, they'll be aware of some of it, yep, but maybe not all of it. Yeah, yeah, interesting. So sometimes what will happen is someone's in a job where they might be a, say, a lawyer, but in reality, everything that they're drawing is suggesting they should actually be more creative person yeah. and yeah, artistic, okay. and they're in the wrong job. Yeah. <laughs> And that's affecting their life. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 It's, um, I think there's nothing wrong with using those different types of 
techniques to get more out of, um, you know, someone's, uh, the information that they're, they're conveying to you because a lot of the time they don't know how to convey that information or they don't know what the, how they should answer a particular question. That's right. And if they if they are if they do tend towards more being of a, a, a creative type person, then then yeah, I mean, drawing a picture may just be the thing that gets out some really crucial information that you may not otherwise have gotten. Yeah, and I don't, I don't even pretend that I know everything, mm. and so I might not have asked the right question. Yeah, because the direction that our, our conversation goes doesn't take me to that one question that could have given a real good answer that that gave me a, a really clear direction yes and um i guess we're always going to to learn and grow and and improve at what we do i'd like to think that we're always going to try and be better yeah. at what we do and want to keep learning so yeah that can really help to to give you extra layers to work with mm-hmm. mm. yeah i think um this topic came up uh, a little while ago, I was talking to someone about how we have to be careful not to influence what our patients are telling us with suggestions. Yeah. Um, when, you know, you say, did it feel, was the pain this, this and this? And before they've actually got an, um, a chance to answer the question, you're already giving them suggestions. And it's interesting how little some people can recall about something that they felt. They had a pain, and then you say, "What was the pain? What did the pain feel like?" And they have no idea. Mm. And then, I suppose, in that capacity, you're offering them uh, descriptive words that they can then attach to it. But I guess that's the the fine line of not not uh, putting words in their mouth and then getting to hear what you want to hear because you know how to treat that particular thing. Oh, that's a very good point. I think my kids have really helped me with that because they they can't always describe what they're feeling. Mm. I mean, my 11-year-old hurt herself at jiu-jitsu the other night in her knee and I asked her all those questions on the way home in the car and yeah. she said, I don't really know how to describe it. Yeah. And so then it was a case of, well, do a bit of testing and mm. have a look and see what hurts and get a better sense of why it hurt in the first place. And yes. The other thing you said as well is often find that if I don't jump in when there's quiet spaces with your patients and you wait and you stay quiet for another three, four, five seconds. Yes. The next thing they say is gold. Yep. And you miss that if you're constantly wanting yeah. to jump in. Yep. So you just be quiet because then they are often, I don't know whether it's a, what happens, but they almost go, well, it's a bit quiet. I better add something. Yeah, I, I think that taking the advantage of uncomfortable silence and uh, using that as as a, as a catalyst for them to come up with their own description of it because I think maybe some people come in and they expect you to to answer all the questions for them. Yeah. And then so they sit there and you ask them and then they they allow for that moment of silence and then you go, well, is it dull or is it sharp? And then they go, oh, I don't have to answer it. That's okay, they'll fix it for me. Yeah. I don't have to really tell them what's going on. But you're right, if you just... Put them in that. Uh, put them on the spot, and then don't say anything. They have to answer, mm. or at least they have to tell you something. Yeah, and maybe they just needed a few more seconds to come up with an answer. Yeah, I mean, you're asking me questions, and I don't know the next question you're going to ask me. So, isn't often, it fun? No, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like to be prepared. <laughs> um, it's you need a few seconds to get a sense of what you want to say. Yeah, and if we're always jumping in, you just 
I think you're going to miss some of the, the best answers you can get. Yeah. Um, which could give you a clear direction. Yeah. And you miss it and then you're bumbling around again for another five, ten minutes to try and get back to where you, you could have got. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. With, um, with the practice of acupuncture, <coughs> excuse me, being so um, varied and different across uh, a varying spectrum of country to country, practitioner to practitioner, even with a difference of someone who learns acupuncture in 2019 to someone who learned acupuncture in 2012. Mm. How do you see the modern application of acupuncture in comparison to what it was, say, a couple of thousand years ago or what we know it was? Yeah. Um, so I did know you were going to ask this question um, and I actually was contemplating this because I think it was the first week that I started studying acupuncture. So first week, first semester ever, and I got told by one of my lecturers that never combine Western medicine with Chinese medicine. Yes. And so I kind of sat with that for a bit and kind of went, well, you know, they're the boss. I'll, I'll try to do that. But within that semester alone, I started realizing that that was actually not just unachievable, but actually wrong because we live in a Western world. Yeah. And we're going to do it anyway. Yes. And we almost have to because of um, Western medicine acknowledging what we do. And so I think that that certainly has really taken off. We're having to use Western medicine models with our clinical trials, which are, are not perfect. And I hope that that um, evolves more into uh, a way that we can um, show them how acupuncture works without having to use their models all the time. Yes. Um, but, but yeah, even just within, from when I started in 93, it used to just get musculoskeletal patients. And even though that's a high percentage of what you still get every week, um, it's a lot more now that people are acknowledging that acupuncture can do. Mm. And I can't remember the exact stats, but I think in around the early 90s, about 30% of Australians had tried acupuncture. Mm. And I think I saw something recently that said we're up around 50% now. Wow, really? So not 100% sure on the figures, but I'm sure there'd be people out there that would certainly know that, but it's something like that. Yes. So still, what's that? Um, over 10 million Australians that have That's still not tried yeah. acupuncture. Um, it's a lot who have. Oh, that. Well, yes, let's yeah. look at the glass half full. Yeah. Good work. Um, but yeah, I, I just think that now people are starting to recognize it does more things. Mm -hmm. So now we're starting to get into that last 50% because they didn't know that it treated emotions and they didn't know that it could do fertility and mm. didn't know that it did all these other things. And once you start to get that sense, people will hopefully give, give us a chance. Um, but it, it, look, I, I think that we get given a very small snippet of what the history has to provide us yeah um i think that we don't get a lot of what happened in history because there weren't colleges thousands of years ago it yeah. was um a teacher uh, and pupil yes and if that if they had gold 
Like if that teacher was absolutely spectacular and he only ever told one person, yes, they can pass on some of that to their pupil. But I'm sure we've missed some incredible Chinese medicine over the centuries. Yeah, it'd be a bit of a shame if you were this amazing ancient Chinese master and the only student you had was was just terrible. It was the only <laughs> person you could pass it on to and then it's gone. Hmm. <laughs> and then even in history in China, depending on whether you're in northern or southern China, dictated also how famous you could potentially become. Mm. And then sometimes it wasn't for centuries after you died before you, you got acknowledged for your content. And yeah. We still have plenty of famous acupuncturists that have books in China that we haven't translated into English yet. And yeah, of course. And then we get a we all get taught a a component of Chinese medicine across the four years that is still only going to touch such a small amount of of material. Mm. And I don't know whether you can, how you can make that better necessarily. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's what I guess all this is about. These this idea, the podcasts, your website um my website other people's ideas it's taking acupuncturists students and practitioners to places that they they didn't get when they studied or only got a small amount of yeah yeah and I, i think that's uh i think that's incredibly important because acupuncture has such potential in in whatever form you practice it. I mean, yeah. I, I said this to you when we sat down and spoke about doing this podcast that if you took away all of the cultural attachments of acupuncture and still just did acupuncture, it would still work. Yeah. And because because that happens, it means there is a potential for some for doing amazing things with it. And if we can have it more widely known about and more widely accepted in whichever capacity that is, then I think that can only be a good thing. Yeah. Um, how would you see that happening if you, like you said, that the the scientific models that they have doesn't doesn't really fit with the, the TCM mm. uh, application of it? How would you seek to change that? Like what would you like to see done that would help acupuncture progress into the future um the research models um in terms of the the quantitative stats stuff is not where i really research on more qualitative Mm -hmm. um hypotheticals and all sorts of things um i mean the models that we're using uh blind trials double blind trials and um all of those models We've already got plenty of people out there like John McDonald that are trying to stick with those models, but they're also showing that they're not really perfect for, for acupuncture. Yeah. Because in reality, chi is everywhere. So if you end up sticking a needle into a spot that isn't a point, for example, yeah, you're still getting chi. Yeah. And the body's still going to try to use the information or the energy you've given it to help heal itself. Mm. Well, that's what you hope. Um. So some of these trials, the way they're done, just going to make it very, very difficult to sort of um, fit within what we want. So, um, And then we often do trials on Western disease and then we use a series of points for that disease and we don't um, make it specific to the person. Yeah. So they all come in and they've all got that disease, but they're all different in Chinese medicine diagnosis often. Yeah whether you use Zung Fu patterns or whatever model you use. Mm. So I think we need to try and figure out a way to make that a bit more 
patient specific. Yes. So again, you're treating the person, not the disease. Uh, I'm not sure whether Western medicine would acknowledge or accept any of these models. Um, I would like to see acupuncture get into hospitals uh, in a lot more countries in the Western world. Mm -hmm. I think that that will really start to show Western medicine what we can do. Yeah. And already people that are doing that and have done it in the past have have shown Western medicine what we can do. Mm. So that's uh, definitely something I'd like to see. Yep. Um, that's going to be for other people. I've got things I like doing. <laughs> we'll get plenty of people volunteering for that. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, definitely. Mm. Yeah, that was always a, um, a a highlight in one of the many John McDonald classes I had where he was explaining that essentially uh, it's difficult to monitor the results of acupuncture because the placebo is not really a placebo hmm. because you put, like the, the fact is you put a needle somewhere in the body, the body will respond to it. Yeah. And that's not even because of acupuncture anymore. It's just that's what the body does. Yeah. So if you're, you know, you're giving it a, a, a smaller version of the same stimulation somewhere else, it's difficult to, to, to determine efficacy when the body is still generating a response. Yeah. And then, of course, they turn around and say, well, it's no better than placebo. Uh, but they don't, they, they don't seem to compare it to, they don't have a control group that, that didn't have acupuncture. Yeah. Oh, I mean, plenty, plenty do, but yes. it, it doesn't seem that that's the focus. Yeah. That they have an acupuncture group, and then a physio group, and then a control group, and then a, um, you know, Panadol group. Am I allowed to say Panadol? Yeah, I can say Panadol. <laughs> Too late. Um, so yeah, it's. Um, I think it's probably on 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 both sides of the fence that that um, both paradigms need to, or not paradigms, but both. Um, approaches this the scientific approach, but also our approach to the scientific approach can also be um, altered slightly so they meet somewhere in the middle, so we can get, start getting some really uh, definitive results for it. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. And obviously, your the way that you look at um, acupuncture will help to push us in that direction. I know um, a number of other people that that are really looking to, to incorporate that side of things as well. Yeah. Uh, Bo Mannix is another one that's really trying to, to take that to the next level and, yes. and good on good on everyone that does. Yeah. That's not my area of interest, but it needs to be done. Yeah. 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 I think it's um it's I don't think we lose any of the uh, the the mystery of it by by approaching it completely from an anatomical and physiological point of view because if that helps to better it then it still creates an environment for traditional like um, for TCM practitioners to still have a pl- um, you know it, it benefits them as well because mm. it, it brings everyone more exposure yeah it does uh, it's just that you know the the scientific method is here to stay so we will have to conform in some way and if we want to get recognition yeah i think anyway oh i think that's fair um so getting towards the end can you tell me more about your upcoming book please what it's about what's tell me all about it david (laughs) what are we to expect um or if if you can even divulge that much because i know it's not even out yet that's all right (laughs) um a big book um yeah no it's um on acupuncture point combinations i remember a book from years ago it's still out there and it's still I think sells quite well uh, from Jeremy Ross. Mm. 
on acupuncture point combinations. So the idea sort of came back when I first started looking at that book and realized that we don't really do enough of that in, in college. Yep. We tend to give you formulas and um, patient has this, these are the points you use, this is why. But then if your patient comes in in clinic and they're a bit different to the what we've taught you, then you get thrown because you don't know then how to change it mm-hmm. all that effectively. Um, so, so I always use the example of spleen chi deficiency. You know, we learn that and we learn the points that you use for it. But what if the patient's got a bit of liver chi stag as well? Yeah. So what points from your list of spleen chi deficiency do you dump so that you can bring in some liver chi stag on the assumption you're trying to treat both at the same time? Yeah. And what, where do you end up then falling down because you might have chosen the wrong ones? Because the thing is, if you look at those patterns, a lot of points you'd want to use are on the legs. Mm-hmm. You know, like liver chi stag, liver three, gallbladder 34 yep. are two really good ones down there. Uh, spleen chi deficiency, spleen three, spleen six, stomach 36. Now all of a sudden you've got all these points in the legs and you haven't contemplated points anywhere else. Yes. And for me, I feel like even though those channels are in slightly different locations and travel in different directions, you're too leg heavy. Yeah, okay. Um, so you need points on the trunk or you need points on the arms or both. And so now we start adding in all these extra ones on the, on the body. We're going to have too many. So you're not you're not a fan of having uh, like what what would be an average number of needles for you that you would use in a treatment? It's usually around about um, twelve, thirteen. Okay. But anywhere from sort of eight to sixteen typically. Yep. yep. Um, and I will try to have them what I call sensibly scattered. Yes. All over the body. Um, and on channels that are not all the one channel and they're traveling in different directions, always look at it as being a bit like um, when you move chi chi gets burnt up yeah so you need regular petrol stations yes so okay. as, as it as the chi moves through the body it needs a, a petrol station to get wound back up again mm-hmm. so if you've got a point all these points down on the legs by the time they get the chi back up to the body it's running out of energy running out of petrol yeah it needs another charge yeah and if there's no points up there it's it loses some of its motivation yeah i see um, and I, I do write about that in the book. Um, there's a lot of different analogies I actually use. So um, that type of idea, the book is designed to try to teach people to to how to think for themselves, what to dump and why, what to add in and why, yeah, okay. and be comfortable with that. Um, and it just goes through a range of different um, Chinese medicine themes from emotion-based stuff to five elements, Um we don't do a lot of five elements in Australia, so there's three big chapters just on five elements. Yeah, okay. Uh, I look at archetypes and point combinations. Um, but just, you know, you start with the basics and you you also look at some of the, the simpler themes like having points on the left and right sides of the body, front and back. Yep. Um, and just try to constantly give the reader a a chance to understand what what's being said Mm -hmm. so i write like a talk so i guess it's not um full-blown academic style of writing but it it hopefully is engaging and it encourages the person to want to keep reading and um 
lots of clinical examples throughout and lots of, as I said, explanations for why the points are there. So, yeah, it just takes the, the reader on a journey through that concept. And yeah. It's actually made me really quite popular in terms of um, doing workshops and, and presenting at conferences mm-hmm. because it's a topic that isn't really valued or talked about enough. Yeah, okay. So I typically get this, um, what's my latest thing? I'm the point combo dude. The point combo dude. That's not <laughs> a late, late thing. That's not a recent thing, is it? That name's been around for a while. Well, since I started writing the book, yeah. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, I think it was a, f- a few um, meetings ago that we had for BCM that that started coming up, the Point Combo Dude. Yeah. Uh, speaking of your conferences, you have a massive list here. Uh, so is this all for the book tour? Or is some of it, some of it your workshops? Or Yeah, some of my workshops. Um, when I first started doing writing my book, I thought that the book itself would be released in May. And so there was a... Um, a concerted push to to get some workshops ready by by then. Yep. Um, so you there are some in May and there were some earlier this year. But um, I, I'm always wanting to do workshops and conferences anyway. Mm. So I've been doing the ACMAC in Australia for quite some time now, and I, I love going there and presenting and really enjoy the all conferences I go to. Yeah. And the one in Rothenburg in Germany is just gold it's such an incredible experience as a presenter or just going as a as a um attendee yeah um so i try to get to conferences that i haven't been to before or ones i've been to before that i really like and so i've got a couple there that a british acupuncture council one which i've been trying to get into for the last 12 years yeah this is the first time so it's exciting and then in and around a conference, I try to get some standalone workshops yeah, okay. within a reasonable distance to, to add in um, extra um, to my trip. Yeah. But also then to expand out on my topics because workshops will often be two, three days, mm-hmm. whereas conferences will often only be a few hours or one day yeah. at the most. Yeah. So the British Acupuncture Council is three hours only. But that's still going to give me a chance to talk about uh, that one's eight extraordinary vessels. Yeah, the Rothenburg is a full day, and I've got one in Poland in Krakow, and that's a full day. How did you get a conference in Krakow? <laughs> what? How did you tell me how that happened? It often just comes down to finding the right person. It's like anything that you do in any job you have. It's getting the right person. Um, and I, I've been, because I wasn't sure if you were going to ask a question like that. And I've been thinking about how I got all the workshops I'm doing. Yeah. And it typically came down to getting the right person. I went and did a talk there. So that happened in um, Amersfoort in the Netherlands. I mm. got a guy that gave me a chance and it was successful. And from there, I've got future ones with him. And then he's suggested additional people in other countries throughout Europe. And then I get the right person to contact. Um, instead of reception, I'm getting the exact person I need to talk to. Yeah. And um, so I'm not a big name yet worldwide. So it's often the topic. It's who referred me. Yeah. So because um, Roger in um, Amersfoort International Lectures referred me, they go, oh, well, he, we like Roger. Roger's um, 
telling me this guy's good yeah. and we'll give him a chance. Yeah. And so in the end, that's how the the Polish conference ended up coming about. It was yeah. through a series of people that um, mentioned the lady that was running it. And um, from there, we did some um, chats over um, WhatsApp or something. And yeah. That's how it evolved. Yeah, because this, is, this isn't like uh, just a trip down to you know, the Endeavour campuses down south or an, or an ACMAC. This is a this is like a world tour. This is what you'd see on a on the, the list of a big band. <laughs> you know, it's um it's very impressive. Thank you. Yeah, I like it. Uh, for those of you who are listening, we will have the tour schedule for Dr. David Hartman available to download. Uh, we'll also put all of your links down where people can find you. We've got uh, your... Uh, philosophy. So we've got Chinese medicine, history and philosophy. So that's a blog. You're on LinkedIn. You're on a uh, couple of different places on Facebook. Uh, so I'll put all the links up that people can find you. Thank you. The principles and practical application of acupuncture point combinations will be coming out. Uh, yeah, August, September. August, September. Uh, you've also got your Acupoint Dictionary, second edition, available always to to buy. I can get that online or... Yeah. Yep. Um, I also buy a whole heap of them and um, and then sell them on. Um, typically, what I buy them for, so yep, gives a discount straight away. And I'm actually going to make that into a ebook, so it'll be a third edition, um, which will come out in um, uh, I don't know what you t- talk like in um, waves. So it's an A to Z of disorders. So I'll do like. A to E, yes. and then put that out. Yep. So people have it straight away. Yeah. Okay. And then I'll put the next lots out as I go. Yeah. Great. It's um. I think it'll work well as an ebook because it is a whole heap series of tables. Yes. And then ultimately, build in a whole heap of um, images of points. Mm-hmm. So take photos of uh, points on bodies and do a bit like what uh, Deadman does with his. Um, Manual of acupuncture, but um, take it a step further and actually show a video of the point being needled. And yeah, yep. So there'll be all these extra things that come with that. Yeah. But that that's probably still at least a, another twelve months before that starts to happen. Yeah, great. Yeah. Always, always a, a project to work on. <laughs> um, David, is there anything else you want to add before we wrap up here? Um, I'm just trying to think. I think we've covered a fair bit of stuff that. Um, I wanted to certainly talk about, um, but yeah, no, I'm just excited to, to be given the opportunity and I, I'm looking forward to my own website coming out and, uh, on it, there'll be, uh, a lot of free content that people can get. And then there'll be some, a cart for people to buy stuff because we touched on it, uh, about half an hour ago. I am very prolific in what I write and there's so much at home on my computer Yeah, and no one's seeing it. And I'm not that sort of person that wants to learn something so that I've learned it and then I can, you know, laugh at everyone and say, look yeah. at me, I'm amazing, I know everything. I yeah, want sure. everyone to have it. Yeah. And um, so it's getting it out there and so that'll be a good platform for that too. So Yeah, great. I'm just excited at the future and where everything's going and I'm pleased for me that my acupuncture career is filled up in my week the way that I want it to be. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I'm just pleased that you gave me the chance to have a chat with you today and thank you again. Of course. Thank you very much for, for being here and being the first guest on FemiaCast and hopefully there's many more to come. And all going well, we'll get you back in the future for another chat. Thank you very much. Awesome. Thanks, David. Thank you. 
Goodbye, everybody. 